Hello, friends, and welcome to The Membership, a podcast about the life and work of Wendell Berry, the Kentucky farmer, poet, novelist, essayist, and activist. My name is John Pattison, and I'm joined, as always, by my two fellow members. This is Tim Watson. This is Jason Hardy. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Doing all right. Yeah, good. Well, on this episode, we're going to – we're heading back into fiction – And specifically, we're discussing two short stories. Fly Away Breath is the first one, and the second one is A Consent. And they're both uh, relatively short. And just a reminder, uh, the way that we're doing this, with the the poetry and the nonfiction, we're reading them in the order in which they were published. But for the fiction, we're reading through it chronologically in the time in which it was set. Uh, And so... These two stories, one, uh, Flyaway Breath, is set in 1907, and uh, A a Consent is set in 1908. And if you're reading along with us, which we hope you are, just a reminder that Flyaway Breath can be found in the collection A Place and Time, and A Consent can be found in That Distant Land, and they're both in the Library of America edition, the third and fourth stories. That's a lot of information Hope you were able to follow that. But. <laughs> and I, I should also say, too, man, this is kind of getting into the weeds a little bit, but I was surprised today when I was looking. I, I, I've been reading in the Library of America edition. I went back to look at something in that distant land and uh, realized that there is a, a story in that distant land that is not in Library of America. And I bring it up because if you're reading in that distant land, it's going to look like we're skipping it. And also, in our last fiction episode, we talked about how there are only two short stories set in the 19th century. And this third story uh, that is not in the Library of America is also set in the 19th century. And so we kind of talked about, first of all, like, why is it not in Library of America? And then what should we do? And... Among the three of us, and then some help from a Wendell Berry expert named uh, Brother Tom Murphy, I was reminded I'd forgotten that that short story also appears in Jaber Crow. Hmm. And so we think that that's why it's not in Library of America. And so we will follow the Library of America and just talk about that particular story when we get to Jaber Crow. Does that, does that make sense to how I explain that? Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. And what was the name of that okay. one? Did you mention the name of it? Uh, it's called, oh, thanks. Yeah, it's called Don't Send a Boy to Do a Man's Work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, so we'll get to that in, what, three or four years? Yeah. <laughs> when it's, about, yeah. <laughs> it's about a young Athey Keith, right? Yeah. The, yeah. 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 All right. So let's start talking. Let's start uh, with Flyaway Breath, which first appeared in the Three Penny Review in, in spring 2008. And, you know, what I love about this story, one of the things I love about the story is that we we get to n- know a little bit more about Rebecca Daw and her family. Actually, we don't really learn more about Rebecca Daw, but we learn more about her family. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the main she, character in the very first short story that we discussed, uh, The Girl in the Window. And Fly Away Breath is about her mother, uh, Maxa, Maximila. Maximilia Daw? How would you pronounce Maximilia? Do you think? Maximilia? But she went by Maxi, so... Yeah, yeah well, or Granny Daw. We'll call her Maxi or Granny Daw yeah, for the yeah. rest of this discussion. Mm-hmm. So the the story is actually 
it's one of Andy Catlett's stories where he is he's we've talked about him before as kind of a the memory keeper for Port William and the story starts a hundred years after it's actually set and Andy Catlett's recalling memories that actually aren't his, you know, he's inherited them from from people down through down through the years and he's he is recalling this time 100 years earlier where uh, Granny Da or or Maxie Da is 92 or 93 years old and she is on her deathbed. And she is surrounded by four granddaughters, including Andy Catlett's grandmother, uh, Margaret Feltner. And she's very close to death. She's laying in bed. It's it's night. She is asleep. She won't actually wake up again. Um, and she's as I said, she's dying, and and she knows that she's dying. She says at one point that if this is dying, it's a lot better than some of the living she's known, or something, yeah, something like yeah. that. And so you know, they're all in this in this room in in the house on Maxie's farm. The four younger women around the older woman. And uh, it gets it gets really quiet, and I'm struggling because I wonder how much of this I should give away because it's such a right. It's such a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. So spoiler alert: if you haven't read the yeah. story, stop now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, go read the story. It's not very long, yeah. uh, and uh, and we can we can give the spoilers away now. Yeah, you're right. I think I just have to go for it, right? Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, so it it gets very quiet. Like even they can't even hear her breath anymore, and and they could kind of lean in a little bit. And just as uh, just as one of them is about ready to say she's gone, Maxie lets out this breath that she's been holding, and it sounds like. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Wendoberry writes that the the young women are startled backward from the bedside, each seeing in the wide open mouths and eyes of the others her own fright. One of the one of the uh, granddaughters accidentally knocks a, over a lamp and it totters and almost falls, but one of the other granddaughters catches it. And then he says, they stand now and look at one another. The silence has changed. The dying woman's utterance, brief as it was, spoke of a great weariness. It was the sigh of one who has been kept waiting. The sound hangs in the air as if visible, as if the lamp flame had flown upward from the wick. It stays, nothing moves, until some lattice of the air lets pass the single distant cry of an owl. As if an answer. (laughs) And then he says, Callie Knoll, one of the granddaughters, turns away, bends forward, and emits what so hard suppressed might have been a sob, but it is a laugh. And then they all laugh at themselves, at one another, and they cannot stop. Their sense of impropriety of their laughter renews their laughter. And so they just, you know, here's this solemn scene, this beautiful scene that he's uh, captured. That Wendelberry is, is captured, and then there's this very surprising and funny and beautiful moment that took me totally by surprise <laughs> when I when I was reading it for the first time. In fact, he even says 
that the that the young women looking at each other, flushed and wet-eyed with laughter, makes them laugh. They laugh because they are young and they are alive and life has revealed itself to them as it often had and often would by surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great example of the, the Wendell Berry's brand of humor. Like those, I mean, that's a very, a very relatable, it's like a very relatable situation that kind of something inappropriate happens. One person starts laughing and everybody can't stop laughing. But at the same mm-hmm. time, the circumstances of it are not totally normal. You know, <laughs> right. yeah. person, you know, letting, <laughs> letting out a noise after everybody thinks they're dead. Um, it's almost like, <laughs> okay. yeah, it's like, uh, National Lampoon kind of <laughs> moment. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. So, what do you guys think of the story? Did you like it? I enjoyed it, I, and I think maybe my favorite part, like, and the, like, well, yeah, I think over overall, I enjoyed it. But I, when Jason first uh, got here to record, I one thought that I had was that I wasn't sure that it was. In some ways, it didn't feel like a short story. Um, and I think it's, and I'll I can get into this later, but because. I was so fascinated by the first like five paragraphs of it and then the Mm -hmm. ending where Andy Catlett's being very transparent about like, this is me sitting here thinking about it because Andy Catlett being Wendell Berry, it just, it felt like, yeah, just felt like we were getting a little, I'll just go into it, but it felt like to me, like we were getting a little window into late life or late career Wendell Berry's writing process. You know, like like he was sitting there trying to figure out what to write, and then that part that came out was him just kind of not knowing what to write, <laughs> but was just right. like thinking about. It starts out by saying uh, Andy Catley keeps in his mind a map of the country around Port William, as he has known it all his life, and as he has as and as he has been told about it all his life from times and lives before this for his. There are moments now that he is getting old when he seems to reside in that country in his mind, even as his mind still resides in the country. I can just see and imagine Barry writing that and almost just like kind of calling out to the muses, like, I'm just going to see where this goes today. I'm not sure where this is going to go. And then he even mentions later on that this story just kind of jumps into his head and he's kind of startled by the fact that it jumps into his head. And it's you know almost like he's taking an account of actually having that moment of inspiration where the story of Maxie just all of a sudden pops into his head and like the, suddenly feels familiar. Well, here it is. And that's the story that he tells. And that was just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And in, and something that didn't occur to me until just now, in those first four or five paragraphs at the beginning, he, he talks about how quiet it is. And, you know, as he's, as his mind is moving backwards in time in the, Port Williams history, you know, he has the sounds, he mentions, you know, he says that the sounds of the engines get quieter mm-hmm. and the distance distances get longer. And it didn't occur to me just now that, until just now that, that the young women were able to hear the owl call in response is maybe only possible because it was pre-engine, mm-hmm. you know? Right, right. Uh, that we don't have opportunities for that kind of quiet anymore. Mm-hmm. And then he even describes Maxie's death at the very end as the definitive quiet. And so it, it's a story about quietude. If that's Is that a word, quietude? It's about quietness if, as great. much as it, anything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I, 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 we also get, at the beginning, we get to see a little, uh, get a little taste of the crotchety, 
the curmudgeon-y Wendell Berry side where he just he just throws in, our descendants may never <laughs> may never know such a time again when the petroleum is all burnt. How they will fare when they d- will depend on the neighborly wisdom, the love for the place, and its genius, and the skills that they manage to revive right, now and then. Right. Like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and then I think he even goes a little further than that. But um, yeah, but I just I just love that where he's like, and eh, I'm just going to throw this in there because this is what I'm thinking, which I love. So yeah, what is that? A future that we deserve to fear but cannot predict. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 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 For sure. I mean, I think picking up on what you were saying, Tim, I mean, I, I feel like this story follows sort of a similar pattern to uh, The Girl in the Window and what was the other story we read for last time? The the Hurt Man, mm. where you kind of have, I mean, the, the little frame narrative of Andy Catlett is, is something new here, but you kind of have a, a long buildup of background information. And then you have a little short vignette of basically a moment uh, mm-hmm. in the literary present, I guess. So, I mean, that, that background, I mean, I feel like it's it takes up more pages than the actual story of mm-hmm. uh, Maxie Dawes' deathbed. That doesn't really bother me. I mean, I think it's, I, I enjoyed reading the background and learning about Maxie Daw, but it's, it's just an interesting form that all of these stories that we've read seem to take. And maybe I mean this is a a time much farther removed from you know what what we experienced. So it may have been that he felt like he had to give a little bit more background to sort of place things in their in their context. But yeah, it rem- it's been a while since I've read this novel, and maybe you guys have read it more recently. But the structure of that you're describing, Jason, it reminds me of the portrait of the artist as a young man. Huh. James Joyce, where he's talking about those epiphanal moments. Yeah. And it's, I feel like the Rebecca Daw refusing to look away in the window. What that, what the moment meant to Matt Feltner when the hurt man comes through his house and he sees his mother caring. And this moment where sort of life surprises them in the midst of oncoming death. Mm-hmm. There's their brief moments, these brief moments of epiphany and maybe by sort of working backwards to kind of present to kind of set you up for those epiphanies maybe that's maybe that's what's happening I, yeah i don't know, just just thought yeah yeah i think that's great i mean i think that that is i mean obviously these are important uh, moments that are living on in the memories of of these people that are in the story but also the people who come after them like andy catlett i mean i i see this as i mean i, I sort of wonder if this is a story that is actually in Wendell Berry's family. I mean, it's such a interesting, yeah, little vignette that it's like it almost had to happen to someone that he heard about. Like, it sounds like a family story, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. that you have. There's something very delicate about these stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also worth worth pointing out, too, that not only is Andy Catlett going back from wherever he is, 2007 or, or so, back to... 1907, but then as Maxie is on her deathbed, Winnowberry takes us, or Andy Catlett, you know, takes us even further back into Maxie's history. So we learn more about Maxie's family during the Civil War. We learn more about her son who was killed as he was leaving to join the Confederate Army. That's uh, something that we're, we're told about in The Girl in the Window. So he takes us back to, even to where 
you know, she's born in 1814 or something like that. So we're going a total of 200 years into the past mm-hmm. uh, in the course of this one story. <laughs> this short yeah. little story. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That anything you, you hinted at that, uh, you know, the Civil War, some of the Civil War stories, and that was one that stuck out to me. I love when a little detail in Wendell Berry stories, you can just imagine it blooming into a full-blown story. Someday, maybe he writes it, probably not, though, but at least in your head, you just get that depth of a story. And the, the one I'm thinking of is when she talks about the rebel cavalry that's hanging around her neighborhood, and mm-hmm. she saved her husband by making him hide in a big, in a bunch of corn shocks, basically, mm-hmm. and it brought him food after dark every day. Um, I think it says how long, isn't it, for like a couple weeks? Yeah, something like that. Three weeks or something like that, that... Um, yeah, because they were they were going to conscript him, like yeah. make him come with them, and, and yeah, and it's interesting to see Wendell Berry use quotes around rebel too, because it's like yeah. it's ever that reminds me of a girl in the window, just this like group of rebel soldiers who are, I assume from the, the apostrophes that or from the quotes that it's not the best group, or they're right, kinda, right. a wily group of almost like mercenaries the, or something, or the bunches. You know, remember he, oh, yeah, he kept yeah, using the, bunch, the word yeah. bunches. Like the bunch of violence that became permissible within the context of, of yeah. the war. Yeah. Do we do we have an entry in the uh, John notices a lot of a word yeah. segment of the show for this this story? Yeah, we do. Do we? Uh, the word the word country. <laughs> okay, nice. Yeah. At the very beginning, yeah. Uh, this, awesome. this, Let's go that's back. That's my one it. contribution to uh, to literary criticism. <laughs> We need okay, a little. We need, we need a little jingle for it or something. Oh, yeah. yeah, we do. <laughs> da, 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 da. John, notice is a word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. So in just the first several paragraphs, yeah, I count. So let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven paragraphs. I count the word country uh, nine times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can see it, and especially those first two paragraphs. I mean, it's just over and over. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure. I, I think as a writer, I spend a lot of time trying to not repeat the same word. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Wendell Berry, in some of these, he just goes in the opposite direction. He He's goes like, I'm going to keep yeah. using this word. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess the effect here is he's talking about the country uh, that he's living in, the place he's living in, but also uh, the country that he remembers in the his own memory and the sort of cultural memory uh, of the community and his family um, that lives. So, I mean, I think he uses the phrase, the country of his mind, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that memory that goes into making up our experience of a place. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I like that a lot. So there are a lot of things that I would ask Wendell Berry if I had the opportunity. And maybe, who knows, maybe we will have the opportunity someday. But here in the first three stories chronologically in the Port William fiction, he has given us three stories of strong women. Yeah. Um, and at least two of – I don't know when uh, – I don't know when The Hurt Man was written. I can't remember uh, when that first appeared. But the first and third, The Girl in the Window and now Fly Away Breath, those are written relatively recently. Mm-hmm. And – I would ask Wendell Berry if I could, if that's intentional. Like as he goes back and fills in the early history of Port William, 
is he intentionally bringing out the stories of these strong women who may not be as represented in some of the earlier st- stories in terms of when he wrote them, um, his the, the stories he first wrote. I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Hannah Coulter being his latest novel that he wrote. I mean, yeah, that's right. Definitely one of his most recent. And I've and I wonder if that corresponds to him. I, I feel like he's also as as a person is trying to deflect more attention off of himself and onto his daughter and the work that she's doing with the Berry Center mm. and the farming program. And he's, I feel like he's trying to bring Tanya forward, uh, like as he did in the documentary mm-hmm. to say like, he, like Tanya has been my partner in all of this. Yeah. Deserves some recognition. Um, I was told once that if I wrote to Wendell Berry, that I should also address it to Tanya. Hmm. And this was 2013 or 2014 because he sees her as a partner in all this and felt like maybe she was overlooked. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I wonder if there's a correspondence there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, they say, you know, over certain decades of time where like you have these big perspective shifts and it's, uh, he must have, he maybe he had, had one then or just not, not that he hadn't, uh, felt that earlier on, but just kind of like a, a new awareness where that was what was like at the front of his mind, and we get to benefit from seeing that at the front of his mind here at the end of, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, or in his later career. Well, and I think it's even—I don't know—I feel like it's even more stark in this story. I mean, we basically—I I feel like he describes the Da family as a, a matriarchal family, right? Yeah, like right. she mm-hmm. has the, she's kind the of authority. T- I mean, I'll, I'll read from. Yeah, page, well, uh, maybe page numbers are irrelevant. It's page 17 in that distant land, but... A place uh, in time. Uh, yeah, sorry, place in time. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the rest of her children were daughters, four of them. Her grief and her bearing in her grief gave her a sort of, le- of headship over daughters and husband that they granted without her ever requiring it. When a certain superiority to suffering, a certain indomitability was required, she was the one who had it. So she's the one in the family who is most able to sort of weather uh, weather problems um, and, and grief. Um, so she is sort of de facto the, the leader of the family. And I think that's, that's great that, yeah, we're seeing that in, in a Wendell Berry story. Yeah, this character is definitely, you get the feeling that it's a, a larger-than-life figure within the family because it's just, she's described as just being so, uh, yeah, I mean, just that the talk of her like going out in the field. The yeah, she, she kept the field, she right? She kept like the field she just as she kept farm, the home, yeah. and she just was this. She shot a guy in the ear. Yeah, she shot his ear off just because he wouldn't die. <laughs> right. Yeah, so that he, so would, he, could, he could tell yeah. about it. Yeah, so, so that he could live, it. so yeah. that he could survive to tell about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, we, we see that. How do we miss that? Not only that, did yeah. not only did her son die, Galen was the one killed, but her husband died right after the Civil War. Yeah, and so she's been a widow for over forty years and has raised these these daughters. is well known in the community. She is a very courageous, powerful woman. Mm-hmm. I, and there's something I actually wanted to bring up last time we talked about those those two short stories. And I can't really get into it now, but I really want to interview this theologian named Ellen Davis. Yeah. Um, Ellen Davis wrote a book called Scripture, Culture, Agriculture. And Wendell Berry wrote the foreword 
Growing up in the Christian culture, I did, like we had a particular interpretation of Proverbs 31. Like the Proverbs 31 woman was kind of like held up as the standard for young women. It was, I don't know, like if, if it was painted, if it, I, it was in pastels, you know, it was mm-hmm. kind of demure and pure. And Ellen Davis, through her agrarian theology of the Bible, flips that Proverbs 31 on its head and shows that the woman in Proverbs 31 is described as a valorous woman. And that if you read between the lines of what's happening there, you can imagine a, a, a woman whose husband has been conscripted by empire to go fight in the emperor's wars. And if the family does not, if they're not able to keep up with, keep up the farm, they will lose and and continue to pay their taxes, they will lose their farm. And so even in the midst of the struggle against empire, like the, like the, the woman keeps the farm going. And she totally changed how I read Proverbs 31. And man, I feel like those are the three women that we meet in these three, three stories. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. Uh, I'd like to. I'd like to read that and hear her talk yeah. about it. That's, yeah, she yeah. she did an episode. One of my favorite episodes of on being with Krista Tippett. Uh-huh. Um, she was interviewed on there, and then Wendell Berry read some of his poems in between. Yeah, uh, I got to see. I'd her, love to have her on. I got to see her with Wendell Berry uh, in Nashville speak. Um, it was it was oh, pretty great, great to have them talking together. Yeah, that's really great. And, and I mean, I even think it's it's important and interesting that the the family members around the deathbed are all women, right? Yeah. I mean, we know that uh, that Maxie only had daughters, but we don't know that she only had granddaughters, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, and like, where's Matt Feltner? Like, um, mm-hmm. it's it's only the daughters around around the deathbed, and um, in this really sacred. Uh, sacred time. And I mean, I guess probably shouldn't read too much into that, but that's, that's an important duty in the family. I don't know. And I just, I I read that sort of through the lens of the line and the manifesto mad farmer uh, liberation front to uh, listen more to women than to men. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He says, do you mind if I give the whole line? Yeah, do it. Do it. Uh, Because we were just talking about this last night as a household. I love that's my favorite poem, and it, that's my favorite passage in the poem. He says, so long as women do not go cheap for power, seek to please women more than men. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's partially because, I mean, what has the work that, you know, uh, in a lot of cases unfairly has fallen almost exclusively to women has been sort of the, the caring work. Um, of the family, right? And and I think what Wendell Berry is doing is holding that up as important work for anyone to do in a family. And the fact that it's only women here is probably historically appropriate. But I sort of read that as this is really important work that a family needs to do for one another, that a community mm-hmm. needs to do for one another. And we can all learn by what's going on here. And I wonder if that was... If what he's describing, you know, in terms of, of her caring for the farm, I remember it, it seems like there's probably a lot of historical accuracy to that because of just the sheer percentage of of men in, you know, at least in the South uh, 
who were killed in the Civil War. And I mm-hmm. don't know. I know Kentucky wasn't part of the the Confederacy, but I and I haven't seen those statistics. But it was just so devastating to 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 the whole community because so many of the of the men were dying. Yeah, that's I don't a, know. I, I say that as a Yankee. I'm not sure what my. <laughs> it's an interesting. <laughs> thing. I was just thinking then. This has got my what you just said got my brain moving in the. Uh, my my classes are talking about the American identity, like what it, mm. the like complicated paradoxical mess that is the American identity, and and we talked a lot about the frontier being a time that sort of like established a lot of the tendencies that Americans have, but then I, one thing we didn't talk about enough, I'm realizing, is the Civil War and this time and what we're seeing through these characters that I think that th- those those struggles and that conflict having reflecting. 150 years right um into the future i just did just didn't think about how and I, i'm also saying this as a dude but like wondering what a from a feminist perspective like what this time period and that struggle that they had to deal with because of all the mess that all these guys got into with the, the civil war and all of them being off and fighting that what kind of yeah what kind of a reflection that had on uh, the future of finally catching up to where we are now as far as women uh, women's rights and women uh like the liberation movement of the yeah 20th century. I mean, I think what a story like this shows is that it was always like always there. Like mm-hmm. the yeah, yeah. Um, obviously the ability and the <laughs> uh, the the drive to even and the ability to do it even better than the men were. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> the men were doing nothing, it right. Nothing uh, has changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. exactly. That's, that's still the case. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. man. Well, anything more for this story before we move on? Well. <laughs> I've been saving a just very unrelated reference to the story. Three Migos. It's not Three Migos. I'm sorry. But I could not, like, I laughed out loud when I was reading the part, not just because it was funny writing, but, like, where she sort of gasps and goes, ooh, and, like, you know, they're sort of startled by it, and they all jump back. And and I was sitting here trying to Google it a minute ago, but I was trying to find a story that was on NPR of this zoologist who is an expert in orangutans. Have you ever heard him? interviewed Mm-mm. he's been on a few times mm-hmm. on like different programs but he tells this story at some point and i need to find it of uh he works at this uh conservatory or what do you call it a that's conservatory it's for music conservancy maybe that's yeah. it uh and i think it was in florida or something but he's there and he was dealing with orangutans and, and uh he was not like the head guy at this point he was just kind of the one who got all the odd jobs and he was called by i think it was florida state university or somebody who said hey you had an orangutan die recently we need that body for for study <laughs> and he was just kind of dreading it he's like oh crap okay i guess i gotta do this and so he went out and dug it up and he was <laughs> digging up this orangutan and uh, finally got down. It's like, of course, it was like midnight or one in the morning by the time he got down to the bottom. And he, and he picks the body of the orangutan out of the little coffin they made and he picks it up. And when he picks it up, its jaw opens up and all the gases released from its stomach. And he said that it just looks right in his face and just went, Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right in his face and of course he, he tells a story of you know just this foul smelling thing that uh and i won't tell you the rest of the story until we're off the air but um <laughs> yeah of what his response is but uh it just i i was reminded of that and i just couldn't stop laughing but um <laughs> So it just screamed in his face, and he said it was like the scariest thing that's ever happened. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that was that was the totally unrelated, uh, yeah, Tim reference that I was really <laughs> trying not to bring up like 15 minutes ago. So 
Well, we still have one more story to get to three amigos. So maybe right. we'll get yeah. there. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the next story that we're going to talk about is a consent, which, as I mentioned earlier, uh, takes place in 1908. And in a consent, we meet chronologically, we meet for the first time some of my personal favorite characters. Uh, we meet the main the main character is a farmer named Ptolemy Proudfoot. And this is the story of how he begins to court <laughs> uh, his eventual wife, Miss Minnie, the local school teacher. And then we also meet Burley Coulter in here for the first time. Yeah. And I'd forgotten about that. And I just, I love Burley Coulter so much that when I got to the scene where you see him in school uh, as, a, as a school kid, I, <clears throat> I just had this goofy smile on my face. Yeah, that made um, my day when I got to that part. But. Yeah, yeah. So, so here, Ptolemy Proudfoot, we're, we're seeing him for the first time, and he's just—he's a very tall, very strong man, comes from a family of big, strong farmers. They wrestle for fun, you know, <laughs> after lunch, and he's just described as basically so big that his clothes just don't even know what to do with him. Yeah, like, <laughs> you know, he's like, yeah, his clothes are, like, surprised like always, by him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I also love Wendell Berry describes him as somebody who's just very content that he had 98 acres on his farm and uh, he never even longed for the other two acres to make it an even hundred. He was just <laughs> yeah. very content with what he had. Yeah. But he is, I think, 38 in this story. Is that right? Yeah, 30, I think so. Yeah, 36 or 38. Yeah, yeah. Th- okay. Yeah, in his late 30s. Sorry, I can't remember. Yeah. I didn't write that down. So in his late 30s, not married, but he secretly is smitten over the the local school teacher Miss Minnie who is in her early 30s and also not married and she's just this tiny tiny person especially compared to to big Ptolemy Proudfoot and they you know there's a sort of an awkward moment in which they uh, almost literally run into each other uh, at the store and he just he just she says hello to him and he basically just walks away without saying anything and the whole ride home, he's trying to figure out, okay, like, what do I say next time we we run into each other? And uh, when that happens, he forgets everything that he's been practicing. Just, you know, here he's, he's so competent, so big, but just completely flustered over over this, uh, you know, pretty petite school teacher. And anyway, there's this, there's a harvest festival that the school puts on every year, and it's a really big deal. It's a couple weeks before Halloween. Miss Minnie puts a lot of work into it. The students recite are going to recite poetry and Bible verses, which is weird to think about <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> and, you know, the school's decorated and the whole town comes out and Ptolemy Proudfoot decides that he's going to go. And so he puts on his Sunday best. Uh, well, first he takes a bath, which is a big deal. <laughs> and then he and then he puts on his best Sunday clothes, hitches up the horse and, and goes there and has an awkward moment when he goes into the schoolhouse and he realizes he's the only only man inside that's just filled with women and he doesn't of course uh, and, he doesn't have children and so yeah like, that's right yeah. <laughs> he has no so other reason to be there yeah and he he's so he's so huge that it's impossible for him to be unassuming yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he can't he can't possibly disappear even though that's all he wants to do <laughs> yeah. uh and finally it starts and the kids as i say like they they recite poetry and you have this hilarious scene when Burley Coulter is supposed to recite a poem that he's memorized. And then finally, the big event of the night is 
the, the the cake and pie auction. And Ptolemy Proudfoot really is just, no one is going to beat him out in buying the cake that Miss Minnie made. And uh, no one does. He's kind of, yeah, say that. Yeah, and he's like flabbergasted by it, like before he even realizes whose it is. Right, like right when he sees it, he's like, oh my gosh. It's the yeah. most perfect thing. I mean, he's, you know, knows that it's hers and that's a, Wonderful bidding war ensues. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's and there's a scene. I, I wish I had I had marked it, but there's a scene where he, you know, he sees this perfect cake and he he almost wants somebody to to like to mess it up, to knock at you know, to knock it, to look at it sideways, just you know, just so he could you know beat them up or something. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all happening inside his mind. Um, it's just this really, really lovely way of showing just how enamored he is with this with this school teacher. Mm-hmm. Finally, he wins the the bidding war, and Miss Minnie comes over, and he uses that as an occasion to to ask her if he can see her home uh-huh. at, after the event, and and she says yes. Uh, I I didn't. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. I love. It. He pays ten bucks for the at the at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in nineteen. What is this? Oh seven. 1908. 1908, yeah. yeah. 1908, 10 bucks. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, a, a, that's, that's an expensive pie. That's an expensive pie. And I like the other thing about money that comes up earlier is when he walks in and he said, I would give $45 to, to be able to leave this room. And he says, or he says, or he says uh, I'd give $40 or maybe $45. So then every time it comes up, he says both. He says, like, be $40 or $45 or whatever. Anybody wants. I wish there was someone here I could give this money to so they could leave. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a lot of like I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a better uh, influence to find, but I I just feel like a lot of Mark Twain in the way this is written, yeah, right? That's a good call. It's, yeah, it's such a like sort of laughable situation, but you know the language is just this mock heroic language. That's yeah. uh, that's a that's very like Tom Sawyer feel to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and even the the poem that Burley Coulter recites, I I, sh- I didn't look this look up the original mm-hmm. to see how his recitation compared <laughs> to the original. Yeah, but it's just very very funny. And she chose it for Miss Minnie chose it for Burley because it was masculine, <laughs> and it starts off when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shock. Anyway, it goes on from there, and he messes it up and she has to give him lines finally he does a very burly coulter thing and says well draw it folks i forgot her but i'll tell you when i heard and before he can you can tell he yeah. says okay thank you burly he's winding up for some yeah some crude, uh, yeah. there once was a man from nantucket <laughs> yeah. uh, like yeah <laughs> oh man that was a really fun surprise to see his name pop up there because i had not I didn't yeah. remember that he was in the story. And I'll say I listened to the audio of the story and the reader does an amazing job with that scene of the mm. like interplay, the back and forth between Burley reading this poem and kind of being sheepish and then the uh you know, and then Miss Minnie kind of coaching him <laughs> desperately coaching him along the way. And the I, I love the line, I don't know, maybe if if you yeah, have like where the poem is, where it mentions the look on Burley's face kind of suddenly changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Says, oh, yeah. <laughs> she looked up to see an expression on his face that she knew too well. The blush was gone. <laughs> he was grinning. The light of inspiration was in his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's like, he's like, ah, I see what I can do with this situation. 
And how great I, I love it that she sees in Burley all of this potential. She knows that he's smart. Right. His reputation will be as a I don't know, will be will be different than that mm-hmm. eventually. But um. Yeah. I think teachers know that feeling all too well. Like <laughs> those kids are like, You're brilliant, but we'll see what happens with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim mentioned how well the narrator does. Uh, Michael Kramer is the the name of the narrator huh. who does that distant land. Um, and he Tim had this great idea of uh, maybe trying to get him on at some point. And some of the other narrators who who do the uh, audiobooks. And I'll just mention that that something we're going to try to do because I think it'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, no, they they have they have to have a pretty intimate understanding of of the work to to have prepared and performed it in such a way. So that that would be mm-hmm. I just think that would be. A fascinating conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe even a couple times if we can convince them to come back. <laughs> you know, over the over the seasons. What were you gonna say, Jason? Uh I just wanna I mean I think it's great that Ptolemy and Minnie's names. Ptolemy of course goes by Tall T O L and <laughs> and Minnie is, is oh, Miss yeah. Minnie. Yeah. I mean it almost like in, in all of these stories, like I, I don't know, I feel like yeah, some of these <laughs> Tall and Minnie. <laughs> yeah. Some of these uh these are some of the best uh short stories I feel like that Wilder Barry's written. Uh, Jason, I've read this story like four times. Yeah. I've read this collection, like the original Ptolemy Proudfoot collection, a couple times. <laughs> I have never really? thought about the names. <laughs> that, and it's right there. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Tall and mini. Yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, it reminds me of like Flannery O'Connor, some of her names for some of her characters, like the uh, the Randy Bible salesman's name is uh, Manly Pointer. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it almost gives it sort of this like fable kind of feel. I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like he is—he is genuinely having fun writing these stories, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I remember when I was in grad school, a uh, scholar of a lot of um, Southern literature came to UT, and his name's Ralph Wood. Uh, he's done a lot of writing about Flannery O'Connor in particular, um, and I got to spend some time with him. And I told him I was interested in, in Wendell Berry, and uh, he said, I, I, "I love Wendell Berry. I love what he's about." But I feel like his fiction is too thesis-driven in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. And, and I could sort of see where he's coming from and with the novels, and we can maybe discuss that uh, when we get to those. But I, I feel like in, in his short fiction, and especially in these, uh, in these stories, these Ptolemy Proudfoot stories, um, that, that is absolutely not true. You can tell this is just, he's, he's just loving telling these stories about these people and it has nothing to do with grinding an axe at least here mm-hmm. anyway yeah i'd agree with that so tim yeah. you uh, i sent you a text when mm-hmm. i when i reread you i sent you both the text mm-hmm. uh when i reread this story and uh i'd read it as i said several times before but by the end i was so happy that i was actually crying <laughs> like it, it was a it was a re- and i was in public and it just really took me by surprise at how affected i was by uh-huh. it uh, you had, a, I think you liked the story, yeah. but you were just saying before we started recording that, well, why don't you d- describe? <clears throat> yeah. And I'll, I'm like, I hesitate too, because it wasn't like an overwhelming feeling. Cause I definitely did still like the story. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I got a kick out of it. it, made me laugh. And it was kind of, you know, more, I guess more on the like traditionally heartwarming side than 
Barry tends to mm-hmm. tends to get. I mean, because because of the payoff at the end, especially with the final lines and stuff. Well, of course, you can. You know, um, but the feeling I got is that the story. Admittedly, I. I feel like if I kept reading it, maybe I'd feel differently if I could read it over again. But it felt just a little bit off of being like Hallmarky, a little bit was the feeling <laughs> I had because it was such mm-hmm. like a, or maybe no, actually, you know, I think more fair than saying Hallmarky would be like uh, like a Dickens story, huh. like okay. know, almost like a more of like a caricature-y. and I think. One of you said something about being like fable-ish or something or something yeah. like that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that might, might might have been the connection there. Like, that might be a, a more intelligent voicing of how I felt. That like, it struck me <clears throat> not as a bad thing, but just as a different thing. Where I was like, it felt very tidy in some ways. I don't know. I don't want to dig myself in too much of a hole <laughs> with this because uh, maybe part of it is that this story is. And being a, a one of the later stories is kind of a gift to people who love Wendell Berry stories, you know, because one of the ones that he had theoretically written later that, um, I don't know, I don't know if I'm explaining myself well, but it was just, it was, I, I'm, I'm purposefully avoiding a w- words like corny, because mm-hmm. I definitely don't think that. Right. But I think that's like what I'm dancing around is that it was just like, Two inches shy of that, yeah. Which in, its, in itself mm-hmm. is like an amazing show of constraint and control by a writer to be able to write a story like this that I enjoy. That like my little like antenna, <laughs> the little meter in my head, the like cheesy meter in my head is like almost there, just enough that I'm really enjoying it, you know. But uh, doesn't quite make it. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, that was that was kind of my yeah. That is the the line of crossing over into like sentimentality or. Yeah. Or something like that is is a is a hard one to toe uh, I, with this kind of story. I think the character of Ptolemy himself, of course, is what keeps it back on mm-hmm. this side of it. Yeah, because um, he's just this lovable but like brutish character, and like I, it's almost like a you know what? Maybe what I'm thinking is that like as I was reading it, the images I was seeing in the story in my head were like Norman Rockwell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. What I'm picturing. Um, he takes his hat off and his hair is sticking in like every, <laughs> every direction off of his yeah. head. And, yeah. Anyways, there were certain elements of his, of Barry's description of Ptolemy that remind me of what I've heard about Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. You know, really tall, really strong, mm-hmm. uh, you know, clothes coming untucked all the time, uh, you know, would wrestle for fun. Uh, and so I think, I don't know if I had Lincoln in mind or Daniel Day Lewis in mind, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> playing Lincoln yeah. as I was reading this. Well, that would that would change things, yeah. <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I don't from it, Lincoln. Not 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 there will be blood. From, from Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. That would be a very different story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like two, just like personal things that resonated uh, with me. I mean, number one, I'm six two, so moderately tall, and my wife is five feet tall. Uh, so, uh, so we're one of those tall and short couples. Uh, tall and many. Yeah. That's what we're calling you guys, tall and many. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, which is great. Also, uh, my wife, uh, told me the story of how her parents, uh, who are, who are awesome people. I love them. Uh, how they met, uh, was her, her dad. Um, they were both a little bit older probably not quite this old, uh, but a little bit older when they met, uh, her dad 
her, her mom was still living at home with her parents, and she got into a habit of sitting out on the porch in the evenings, and uh, her dad got into a habit of riding his bike down the road that, uh, that her mom lived on in the evenings, and this habit carried on for a while before he finally got up the courage to go up onto the porch and talk to her, uh, and, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. So yeah. uh, it's a good story. Yeah. Here's the here's the passage where he sees the the cake for the first time. He says it was an angel food cake with an icing as white and light and swirly as a summer cloud. It was as white as a bride. The sight of it fairly took his breath. It was the most delicate and wondrous thing that he had ever seen. It looked so beautiful and vulnerable there all alone among the others that he wanted to defend it with his life. It was lucky, he thought, that nobody said anything bad about it. And he just wished somebody would. He took, a posi- <laughs> he took a position in a corner in the front of the room, as near the cake as he dared to be, and watched over it defensively, angry at the thought of the possibility that somebody might say something bad about it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, that's that, uh, that's that sort of Twain, mm-hmm. Twain-like language, you know, this heroic language about this, this cake. Yeah, a little uh, caricature. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Did you guys notice that the 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 girl who sang after Burley is Kate Helen yeah. Branch, who will be uh, their lives will be intertwined for yeah. I did not catch for that. many decades. I did not catch that. Yeah, this was a it was a fun story. I think this is and this is one that I can imagine revisiting um, just just for the the joyful moments of it. It stands mm-hmm. out. I, I think it stands out. Yeah. Well, and it stands out, and we're told it's like a legend in Port William, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah, this is true. when Tall makes his his courtship public, and everyone just always remembers this story uh, because he makes a fool of himself after having only ever barely talked to many. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Oh, I guess we 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 hadn't talked about the the wonderful sweet scene where he's. Out, back out in the fields, talking to his horses, going, <laughs> <laughs> like practicing how to how to exchange yeah. pleasantries. Yeah. There's like horses and his do- his horse and his dog are looking at him, all confused. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Saying like, well, "Hello there, Miss Minnie. <laughs> Morning, Miss Minnie." Yeah. yeah. And what does he finally say to her when he actually says? <laughs> it says he like looks up at the sky and says, "Why, howdy!" And he <laughs> keeps writing. <laughs> like, <laughs> Why howdy? Yeah, that's great. (laughs) I feel like, you know, for anyone who's ever been super awkward around somebody that that they liked, uh there's a lot in here that they will recognize. I was never... Never super confident in that in that area of my life. That area <laughs> yeah. of my life, and so I kind of stumbled my way through dating and stuff. One time, my mom said, "Like Johnny, does she have to hit you over the head with a two by four?" Yeah, yeah, <coughs> I'm uh, I, I'm there as well. Yeah, I think you're in good company. Yeah, <laughs> I say that my my story of. Meeting, meeting my wife is much the opposite that I was like sitting somewhere trying to like mind my own business and then she like barged right in and was like hey what's your name you know like started talking, <laughs> just like started talking to me I had been on campus for like 48 hours and like met her immediately so that was a 
she saw me reading Dostoevsky, hmm. which she didn't know is that I was like my fifteenth attempt at reading the Brothers Karamazov. <laughs> oh, but like, you look so awesome! I look so smart. There, yeah, yeah, it's like oh, so gosh. Page set, I'm about I'm about to the point that I can't get past page eighty. <laughs> that was the time I made it through, though. It kept going, so I loved it. Yeah, it is fortunate that we all uh, enjoy Ptolemy Proudfoot as a character so much because we have, I think, at least six more stories with Ptolemy Proudfoot and Miss Minnie. So that'll be fun. Uh, we are going to continue with fiction for the next episode. Yeah, I think next time we're, uh, we're, we're switching to a different set of characters, back to sort of the Feltner set of characters, but we'll be back uh, very soon to the, the Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy Proudfoot side of Port William, I guess. But but next time we're going to be looking at a short story called Pray Without Ceasing. It is a short story, but it's all, almost a novella. It's pretty long, so I think we're we're going to devote a whole episode to it. And this is, uh, I'm especially excited about that as uh, the, the first short story I ever read. Actually, I think the first thing I ever read by, by Wendell Berry, so excited about that for sure. Uh, and you can find that in that distant land, and then it's in Fidelity. Uh, it's also in, yeah, yeah, it's the first story in Fidelity. <laughs> yeah, so it's yep. first story in Fidelity, and you can find it in that distant land as, as well as the, the Library of America edition. So it's all over the place. So I'm looking, looking forward to that. Yeah, that'll be great. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining us for this episode of the membership. Uh, you can follow us on uh, online. We'd love to connect with you there. You can go to our website at membershippod.com. And then we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Membership Pod. And yeah, I don't I think that about does it for today. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again, friends, for listening to episode five of the membership. The excerpts read in this episode can be found in That Distant Land and A Place in Time, which were written by Wendell Berry and published by Counterpoint Press. If you like what you heard, please take a few minutes to rate and review us on iTunes. This helps others find our podcast. The membership is a proud member of the Rabbit Room Podcast Network. To discover other great podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcasts.